truly it is a blessing to be in the house of God on this day, the Lord's day. We're thankful for God for ordering all of our steps uh, to this place so that we can get it safely, so that we can participate in worship that is in spirit and in truth. Uh, I am glad that you did not let a little dusting of snow or a little ice on the road deter you from coming out uh, this day, as we know here in New England, uh, this is nothing compared to what we're going to get uh, in a month or so. And so this, is, this was just good training for us for the difficult uh, Sundays where there will be real snow out there and there'll be real ice out there. And I just believe that you're not going to let that stop you from coming to worship service on Sunday because I know you wouldn't let that stop you from going to work on Monday. The Bible still commands us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 25, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as a manner of some is. And whenever Sunday comes around, if you're not here, you need to ask yourself, why am I not at the worship gathering? And you really need to have a good reason other than it's cold or I'm tired, or I'm not feeling like it, or I had other things to do. Uh, there ought to be no more important appointment that you and I have each week than to meet with God and his people on Sunday for worship service. And I know some of us may have grown up in environments where regular Sunday attendance was not something that stressed. But if you read the scriptures, then you, you recognize if you're a Christian, you need to be gathered with other Christians on Sunday. Thought I'd at least get an amen from you old time church folk. Amen. You help the new people to understand that that's really what we're supposed to be thinking. But I guess, okay, that's kind of helped me to understand where you old time folk are. Okay, so let me move on here. Uh, we, I, I've selected a passage in scripture that I know many of you are uh, familiar with, especially those of you who like to drink. Uh, I, I know you are familiar with this. Uh, and... But what I want to say is that the thrust of the lesson is not you can drink wine. Uh, it's bigger than that. Uh, but I know some of you, you know, this is one, you, this is your go-to passage. And we got these holidays coming up, and, and, and some of you are going to have eggnog, but some of you are going to have some other stuff. Well, even if you have eggnog, you're going to spice it. Yeah, you're going to spice, spike it with something. Uh, just make sure it's spiked with the Holy Spirit. And then we'll be okay. The Bible says in John chapter 2, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Notice that it says, latter part of one, his mother was there. And then Jesus and his disciples were invited. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they were filled, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, or when they get drunk, then the inferior or the weak or cheap wine comes out. You have kept the good stuff, the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
This morning, I want to use as a subject something that Mary, the mother of Jesus, said. And that is, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he, Jesus, says to you, do it. And he first understand that whatever Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, says to us, you and I need to do it. We need to do it obediently. We need to do it with a cooperative spirit. We need to recognize that whatever it is he says, that's what we're obligated to do. Uh, it's not a suggestion. And hopefully as we work our way through the lesson, that will make more and more sense to you. Now, we live in a time where people are often will go out and seek advice from other people. And, and we have gotten accustomed to seeking advice from people in areas where we don't have a good understanding or we don't have a good background. But one of the things I want to suggest to us is that we need to start recognizing in the spiritual, you need to seek advice also. And in the spiritual, you and I need to seek advice from Jesus. Because we're quick to go to other people and listen to them. And when spiritual matters comes up, we want to use our own understanding. Now, if you're not a regular student of Scripture, you don't regularly read and study Bible, you're going to be far from where God wants you to be on your own understanding. If you don't believe me, just look at the bad mistakes you made in the past. Because you've grown, you're an adult, you're on your own, you make decisions. But many of them backfire on you. So what are some of the types of situations that we need and sometimes seek assistance with? Well, some of you who are honest, uh, when, you, when you're dating, you ask people about dating advice uh, because you know there's just a whole lot about dating that you don't know. Is he the one? Is she the one? What do you know about that background? Anybody ever done any, any background search on folk you're dating? Or you just date them because they look good? And then discover on the backside that you wish you had known because they, they got some insane family members. They got, they got some family members that have mental issues. Or, or, or the person you're dating uh, has spent some time behind bars. Or they got a drug habit. There's a benefit to doing some background search, some asking some questions of people who may know that person. Uh, when it comes to educational pursuits, many of us, when we graduated from high school, we sought uh, input on what college should I go to? Or should I even go to a college? Should I go to a trade school? Should I go to a junior college? Or should I just go out in the job market? You know, what are the options out there? Can I make as much money uh, just going out there and, and, and getting a job versus a specialized trade? You, you guys know formal education or continued education is not for everybody. And, and there's some good jobs out there where you don't have to have no degree. Uh, uh, certifications that you get out there six months or a year many times puts you in a good, uh, a good market. And then there are those we ask sometimes when we're unemployed, when we're looking for a job. You, you ask folks, you, you know something? You know somebody? You know any leads? Uh, and then you, 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 uh, you frat people. Uh, you just call on your frat brothers and stuff like that uh, who are already established. And because of the relationship, or you saw RARs, uh, you, you guys have these relationships with these people who are in these positions. You call them up, text them, email them, and they hook you up with the position Amen. and whatnot. Uh, but we seek advice. Those of you who have, you don't have all the money you want to have, or your money is short, or you got more bill than you have, more, more month than you have uh, money, uh, you're quick to ask people for a loan. Or give me. You guys know how you do it. Uh, to help you pay your bills. You get into legal trouble, or you have... Uh, uh, Issues where you're buying property or whatever the thing is, you need some legal assistance or guidance. Uh, we have no problem with hiring an attorney and paying them whatever they charge. I, I sometimes wish I were an attorney can charge three and four and five hundred dollars an hour. But you know what? People pay it because you want good legal advice. Uh, people go out uh, who are going to do major purchases. You, you want to buy a car, you want to investigate, what, what, what's, what's going to give me the best gas mileage for my buck? You know, uh, 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 you know what, what's a good range for car payment? Now, come on, some of you didn't consult anybody, you got these nice cars, and then you discovered you couldn't afford them. Guess what happens when you have a car payment that you can't afford? Guess what church folk do? 
they rob God in order to pay for their car. And then six months, you're on four flats, and you're trying to figure out why you're on, on the flats, or you got all these car issues. Uh, you can't rob God and think you're going to prosper. It's going to catch up with you anyways. Uh, people who want to get married. Uh, you ask people who have been married about marriage. Now, I need for us to understand, unless you have been married, you don't know nothing about marriage. You can read all the books you want to read. But until you're in the situation, living with somebody who's not you, and having to deal with them, and they having to deal with you, you don't know anything about marriage. That's why some folks who are married now wish they could be unmarried. They won't tell you that, but in their heart of hearts, that's what they're thinking. And, and so it's good to seek counsel. Uh, I know when we have medical issues, some of you have the slightest ache, and you're calling up your, your primary, or you're going to the ER, or wherever it is you go to for your medical treatment. Uh, because you want counsel, you want to make sure that, you know, whatever this thing is, is not, uh, is not bad, is not deadly. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I also want to say is that you and I need to be just as quick, just as eager to get counsel and advice when we're facing spiritual situations. And stop relying on your own understanding. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. And many times we have done what we saw I thought was right, and it ends up uh, causing us to run in a ditch. And so I, I would suggest that as a Christian, the encyclopedia, we ought to be consulting on a regular basis. This is our encyclopedia, and we need to consult it regularly. And uh, there are times where you are at passages that are just hard for you to interpret, to understand. You need to talk to somebody. Who knows more about the Bible than you do? who has greater insight than you do. It doesn't take long if you're at a congregation to begin to understand uh, who are the Bible teachers that you can connect and relate to. No amen on that one, okay. <laughs> I know at congregations that, that I've been a part of where I was not the preacher. There were some Bible school teachers I had a, a close connection with and some I didn't have a close connection with. And the fact that they didn't have a close connection doesn't mean I didn't like them or respect them. It's just that some folks you just feel more comfortable talking to about spiritual issues. Amen. And we need to value that and appreciate that because you need that opportunity to engage in conversation with a person who knows more about the scriptures than you do and feel comfortable taking their solid biblical advice. Because in our text, that's, that's really what happens here. A situation develops. Mary having the keen eye and insight consults her oldest son. I think you all call him Jesus. And, and presents a situation to him. And then he makes an interesting statement to her that we'll talk about in a moment. But he ends up making something happen. But it's because she makes the statement uh, to him, requesting his help, his assistance. So as we open up in John chapter 2, we're at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. So, so he doesn't have a whole lot of fame. He, he's early on in his ministry. He doesn't have thousands of people following him like we read about later in the gospel. So this is the beginning of his per, uh, personal ministry. Uh, it is, it's after the Matthew chapter 4 experience, where he's been out in the wilderness, he's been tried, and now he goes off. And so now he's going out uh, uh, in his public ministry where he's going to be saying and doing some things and teaching, and people are going to recognize who he is. And so he performs a miracle. He performs a sign that points to who he is. Jesus just did not just do miracles just to be entertaining folk. When he did miracles, when he did signs, they pointed towards something. And the sign in our text this morning points to him being deity. It points to him being God's son. Now, many people at the wedding probably didn't recognize it. You guys know these people, some of them are high and everything else uh, off this week of drinking. And so they didn't always have the perception that they should have had. Just like sometimes people come to church services under the influence and that's not necessarily they drunk, they still on the influence of sleep. They didn't get enough rest. And so it's hard for them to focus and concentrate. Uh, their heads are nodding and bobbing and stuff like that. You, you guys know what that's like. You've been there. Uh, normally I look at the people on the front, uh, and, and I see every now and then some heads nodding. They're not nodding in agreement with the sermon. They're nodding in, in sleep. 
is falling on the eyelids have gotten heavy. And so I, I, would, I would just suggest to you, this is just, if, you, if you know you, you, you didn't get enough rest at night, you may want to flip where you sit. Go to the back where you're not as noticeable. And so if you're on the back, the camera won't catch your head bobbing. You know, because we're streaming. And so the, the camera sometimes catches all of you on this front. The, right about here, the, the camera catches you. Yeah, I'm just letting you know. So you may want to go back and look at some of the past streams and see if we caught you bobbing and nodding and stuff like that. So, so we're, we're at a wedding feast. Uh, we're at a wedding feast uh, in, in Cana. And so it's interesting that Jesus chose to perform his first miracle at a wedding. And one of the things that we see highlighted in the text at this wedding is the importance of wine. Now, I need to say at the beginning, the wine that was used in the first century was not the stuff you buy in the liquor store today. The wine used in scripture was usually diluted with water. So it wasn't 100% proof like the stuff you got in your refrigerator at home. The stuff that you got at home will get you drunk with just a little bit of it. When you have diluted wine with water, it takes a whole lot of it to get you drunk. But you still can get drunk on it. I need for us to understand Jesus frequently attended social events. And so Jesus wasn't afraid to go to a party. And he didn't view that he was violating scripture uh, because he went to uh, a social event. And some of us, we, we, we're too holy to go to a birthday party. We're too holy to go to an anniversary celebration or a graduation ceremony and whatnot. Uh, you need to recognize there's a place that you need to go because you liked. And, and you can help that, per that place or that occasion be a whole lot better with a Christian presence because there's some stuff folk won't do sometimes when Christians are there that they'll do when we're not there. So, so don't be quick to say, well, you know, I don't need to go there or it's, it's an unholy event. It becomes holy when I show up. Because when I show up, I bring the Holy Spirit with me. What about you? You bring your spirit or you bring the Holy Spirit with you when you go places? That's, that's the difference. If you bring in your spirit, then yeah, it may be worse than what it was. But if you show up and God is regulating you, we're going to be all right. And so as we learn in the text, we have some, some attendees that are highlighted. Jesus is there. His mother Mary is there. And his early disciples. And I say that because if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see he only has about four or five disciples now. There's no thousands of people following him. And so, again, this is early in his ministry where the crowds have, have not started following him, where his fame is not... Uh, uh, going out so far that people are crowding up places where he is to see him. It's early in his ministry. And a socially embarrassing situation is about to occur or potentially may occur if they run out of wine at this wedding uh, feast. And, and I'll speak to that a little bit later. Uh, one of the things that's important as we look at Bible situations is to look at them in terms of their culture. And so wedding ceremonies in the Bible are not like wedding ceremonies today. And a lot of times when we read about a wedding, we think the bride is coming down the aisle and everybody's going to stand up when she comes in and stuff like that. No, it was not so in the first century. The bride is a, is a center of attention in our modern weddings. In this century, the groom was. The groom, the man was, not the woman. But I'll say a little bit more on that in a moment. So when we get to verse number one, uh, we see the setting. We're on the third day. And when he's referencing the third day, it's the third day after he had called the disciples that he called in chapter one. So it's three days later after that incident that they, we are now here in Cana where he is about to uh, be uh, involved in this wedding ceremony, feast, reception. Cana is a small, uh, little insignificant country town. So it is, a, it is interesting, Jesus chose to perform his first miracle in an area that wasn't highly populated, nothing special about it. But God doesn't just show up in the big cities. God show up in the obscure towns and, and small little villages and things like that. 
And so a wedding was a major social event, just like it is now. Uh, when you get an invitation to the wedding, some of you go out and buy a whole new outfit. Uh, just go to the wedding. I don't understand that your old outfit is just as good. You're not getting married. And so it's not about you being on, on display. Uh, but we act like uh, some of the people who go, you act like you're getting married. Act like you're part of the wedding party when you're just somebody who's going to sit on the pew and, w- and watch what goes on for about 20 or 30 minutes. But, you know, that's, you know, but that's the truth. Now, weddings back then could last, or the wedding fee could last as long as a week. So that's a whole lot of partying going on. So today, it's 30 minutes, uh, maybe, yeah, 30 minutes if, if everything starts on time. And then you go to the reception for a few hours, and you go home. At this time, when you went to the wedding, you you there all week. Celebrating with the happy couple, partying with them, and drinking wine. That's watered down. Right. I want to keep coming back. Watered down. That's been diluted with water. Not a, not a thousand proof like you guys have. So, so weddings back then... The groom, and Dallas, you ought to appreciate this, the groom was responsible for the expenses, not the bride's father like we do today. I'm thankful I don't have no daughter. Because that's, that's an expense I don't have to deal with. Uh, but Brother Brian, you, you, got, you got a daughter, so I know when, when you do it, she's going to want this ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 wedding. And, 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 and because you got it like that, that's what she's going to have. But, but it was the groom who was responsible for all the wedding expenses uh, in this culture. He was responsible for making sure that the spread lasted all week long or until this thing was over. And if it didn't last or he ran out of stuff, the responsibility was on him. That's why this situation, this potential crisis here, it, it could, it's going to be very bad if he ran out of stuff and couldn't provide for his guests. Hospitality was very important in the first century. Some of you grew up at a time where it was important to be hospitable when folk came over your house. Come on, you remember a time where people would come over and folk go in the kitchen and fix something, even if they didn't have anything fixed. It didn't matter what time of day you got, you can get there at midnight and somebody won't say, you want something to eat? And somebody go in the kitchen some of them older ladies who knew how to cook, who didn't rely on a microwave to thaw stuff out, who could go out there and in 15 or 20 minutes cook up a feast. None of you remember that? Okay. Back in the South, back in the South. Uh, that, that's nothing for uh, some of the older families just go in there and they whip up stuff and you're trying to figure where all this stuff came from. It came from love. And, and so hospitality was important. And one of the things that we have lost in our modern age is hospitality. Just being hospitable to people who come over to your house, you know, offer them something uh, to eat or to drink, or you know, uh, clean off a place for them to sit and whatnot, give them the best seats in, 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 the, in the house, you know, clean up before your guests come over when you know they're coming. You know, all those little little things that get lost in, the, in, in your business of working. I don't have time to clean up. They're just going to come in and sit in a mess like the rest of us do. Well, if hospitality is important to you, then you t- pay attention to those little details. Verse number two reminds us of who's there. And we see that Mary is present. And not only is Mary, the mother of Jesus, present, she's involved. Because you're going to see her giving instructions, running stuff. And it's not even her wedding. You guys heard that? She's running stuff, and it's not even her wedding. Any of you been at weddings where folk running stuff, and it's not even their wedding? They're not even part of the wedding party, but they're telling everybody what they ought to do? Okay. Interesting, John does not mention Mary by name in our text. Jesus honors marriage by being present at this marriage ceremony. He honors marriage by being there. And in our text, it's marriage between a man and a woman. That's marriage that God honors. These 
relationships that exist in our contemporary world where a man and a man get together, a woman and a woman get together, that's not God-ordained. That's world-ordained. And I know we live in a culture where all that is permissible and stuff like that. We're God's people. And we have to stand with what Scripture says. Society is going to do what society does. But God's people got to call stuff the way God calls it. Now, in doing that, folk not going to like you. Uh, they're going to say all kinds of stuff about you. But you need to stick with what God said. And, people, and again, people can then do what they want to do. But we stand with God. So as we move further in the text, a problem occurs. They run out of wine. Now, if you're on the fellowship committee, you ought to be able to understand this. Because we've had some close calls when we've had our fellowship meals, where folks who were supposed to bring food didn't bring it. And we just praying that we have enough to get through this fellowship meal. And we've had some close enough calls that the fellowship workers didn't eat until after everybody else had been served, so we make sure that we didn't run out. Now come on, you guys know, if we ran out of food up in here, some of you all just lose your mind. <laughs> you come through the line and we say, well, I'm sorry, you know, we didn't, we, we, we didn't, we didn't have enough. You know you're not gonna say, oh, brother and sister, I understand, thank you. Uh, I'll just sit over here and drink my water and I'll be okay. <laughs> I would say that's one of the reasons why when we have a fellowship meal, don't try and load up your plate the first time through the line. Recognize other folk coming behind you. And so if there's leftover, you can always get your seconds and your thirds. But at least let all of us go through at least one time, those who want to go through. And so if you can identify with that kind of apprehension and the potential crisis that that would, uh, uh, would bring about, think about this wine, this wine running out, how embarrassing a situation it would be for the host. Who knew going into this, this is a week-long celebration. So you got to have a, 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 an abundance of uh, resources to meet the needs of the people who are going to be there. And this was not small crowds. So there would have been embarrassment on this new family that's being formed. If, if, if folks said, you know, you remember on their wedding uh, feast, they ran out of food. They ran out of drink. On day three, and we got seven days to be here. We got four days. They're trying to find something. And so in the midst of this impending crisis, Mary looks at her son to fix the problem. Now, by this time in, in the life of Jesus, Joseph, his father, is dead. So you can understand how his mother may have been dependent on her oldest son. I need you to understand, Jesus was her oldest son. He was the firstborn. All the other folk that came later were younger than him. And, and so in some of our families, you know uh, uh, that, that parents or, uh, or your mother or father lean heavily on the oldest child to help out with a whole lot of stuff. Now, come on, some of you had to help raise your brothers and sisters. And, and some of you liked it, but some of you kind of resented that because you said, they're not my children. But you follow the instructions of your parent or parents. So he's the oldest son. Uh, she's used to depending on him to get things done. But also remember, Jesus, I mean, Mary knows who Jesus is. He's God's son. She understands. She remembers what the angel told her at, at the moment when, she, when he told her about her uh, being impregnated. So she knows there's something about Jesus. Jesus has been raised by her, and he's been a good child. Now, you say your child has been good, but can you say your child has been good like Jesus? You say, well, I got an obedient child. Can you say your child has been as obedient the way Jesus would have? I know the answer, too. And so it's from this standpoint that Mary looks to Jesus to fix the problem. Now, that's Mary's perspective. Let's look at Jesus' perspective uh, in verse number four. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And so we looked at that and said, he's being disrespectful, he's being rude. No, he isn't. He's simply stating the fact. This is not my problem. 
It's not my wedding. I'm not the one getting married. So he states the obvious. He's, not, he's, he's, he's God in the flesh. He can't be disrespectful to his mother. He created his mother. Can you, can you grasp your mind around that? He's the creator. So he created Mary. And so he says, that's not my problem. My hour has not come. So Jesus reminds her, this is not my time to put my deity on display. That, that's, what he's, that's, his, that's what his response is to her, to help her. But Mary knew her, knew her son. She knew her son. And so that's why she said, you know, servants, whatever he tells you to do, you guys do it. So she heard what he said, uh-huh. but she also knew what he was going to do. Uh-huh. So interesting, Jesus didn't say no. He just says, not my problem. And then he went on to fix the problem, even though it wasn't his problem. Mary believed that Jesus would do something about the situation. And I don't know about you. I believe Jesus would do something about every situation, every problem I got. Amen. All I've got to do is open up my mouth and ask him. We ask everybody else to help us with situations that we're going through. We listen to everybody else's advice. Why don't we ask Jesus to help us when we're in crisis? So the question on the floor I want to throw out to you is, do you believe Jesus can do something about your situation? We whine and complain about our situations. But if we really understood Jesus, we really had the kind of relationship with him that we ought to have. You go talk to Jesus about it and trust He's going to do something about your issue. And if we have that kind of trust, you don't have to talk to nobody else. Our problem is we talk to too many folk who can't do nothing about our situation. And then when they spread what we told them to other folk, then we get an attitude when you should have kept your mouth closed. I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I've never had an experience where Jesus broke my confidence. Jesus knows confidentiality. So when you talk to him about stuff, it stays between you and him. When you talk to a person, there's always a possibility that what you said to them is going to leak out to other folk. And you can't do anything about that but simply ride the wave when that occurs. So what potential crisis or situation or embarrassing moment is approaching your life? that you need Jesus to do something about. Now, come on, come on. Let's be gut level answer. I know you got stuff going on in your life that you need some help with. I know you got stuff going on in your life that you don't know what to do about it, and you've been trying to seek counsel and advice. You haven't gotten any that's worth anything. Trust Jesus. Whatever it is he says to do about your situation, that is what you do. Uh, in October, October, September, October, November. Okay, uh, sometime in October. Uh, did you guys see the see the news, or you get something in the mail that said your heating costs are gonna go up? Yeah. Now I don't know about you, but that's a crisis for me. <laughs> now unless you are a millionaire like Brian, uh, you know he doesn't he have to worry about escalating bills. <laughs> he, he he can just pay it. But for the average one of us. Uh, when they say your heating bill, because you know in the wintertime up here, we got to have some heat. And I don't think any of you are sparing with the heat like you are with the air conditioning. I, I, don't, I don't even understand with the air conditioning, but I've been in some of your houses where I'm thinking, you got air conditioning, it's not on. <laughs> but nobody's going to stay in the house when it gets cold. You have to turn the heat up. And so... That's a potential crisis for some of us when you got limited resources. But the increase is coming, and you got to have heat. Okay, well that's, uh, you know, that's, okay, you don't, you don't get that one. Okay, you, you, you get a bad health report from your doctor. That's a crisis. You need some help to deal with that, to calm you down so that you don't get out of control. Somebody dies in your family that's close to you. Somebody that you had a very close relationship with, you don't die with them. You seek help and comfort from Jesus. And Jesus sends us people that help get us through that, that are supportive, that are there with us. But we have to be willing 
to accept the help, and we got to be willing to do what he says. Okay, Christmas is coming uh, in two weeks. I know you guys, some of you guys have already maxed out your credit card, trying to get Christmas gifts for everybody, and you say, I'll worry about the bill in January. No, you... And so you are praying and hoping that you get a raise in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Instead of having the discipline to recognize, one, you don't have to get everybody a gift. You don't have to get everybody a gift. Those days are gone where you got to feel like you can get, get everybody something. Your income dictates who you get a gift for. But when you, you have this big magnanimous heart, I just want to give to everybody because it's a season of giving and all that kind of stuff. Okay, well, when the credit card companies come and, you know, they, you got the late fees and the overdraft fees and all this kind of stuff, uh, those, are, those are crises. Again, it's a man-made crisis, but it's a crisis nevertheless. But what about these family issues, family drama? Anybody got any family drama going on? Family drama is ugly. But Jesus can do something about your family drama. So what you and I need to do is trust that whatever he says, we do. And then we look to, for him for the outcome. So if we cast our cares on to Jesus, then why are you still worried? Now some of you play dice. Uh, you know about casting. Uh, uh, you know about that. Okay. I, I'm just trying to be, get you to be real. Uh, some of you had some dye in your hand before. Uh, some of you have been around the roulette table. Okay, but you don't want to admit that. You know, that's, that's your private life and whatnot. You don't have no private life. God knows it all. Amen. Jesus is able to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So that's the point we ought never forget. He can help he can make a difference in situations that you can't do nothing about, your doctor can't do nothing about, your best friend can't do nothing about, uh, your neighbor can't do anything about, or your best friend. Nobody can do He can. And so I'm, that's why I'm glad for Mary's making this statement to the servants. Whatever it is he says, do it. Because I know Jesus is going to do something about this situation. Now, that means we got to rise to the occasion, get out of our comfort zone, and open up our mouths and sometimes acknowledge, I need help. I need help. I need help. The stuff that I have been trying has not worked. I'm at wit's end. But if you simply do what he says, it'll be okay. So I need for you to understand that partial obedience is no obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And we will say we're following Jesus and we'll go halfway. Now you got to follow all the way. You got to go all the way with him. Now, if we're going to respond properly in these kind of situations, two things need to happen. One, you and I must have a submissive spirit. And we got to have a believing heart. So there are situations that we get ourselves in or that happen to us in life. It doesn't matter what your credentials are. It doesn't matter what your bank account uh, may be. It doesn't matter about your intellect. You're in a situation, you can't do nothing about it. You are powerless, you are helpless. You need God in the worst way. And the sooner you recognize that and take your hands off of it and submit to his will, now you're headed in the right direction. Now, if we're going to submit to him, then we got to believe that he can do something about the situation. I don't know about you, but I just believe any situation I find myself in, Jesus can get me out of it. I, I just believe any bad uh, uh, decision I make, Jesus can overcome it. 
Now, yeah, I may have to deal with consequences. I may lose something, uh, and you know, I may be embarrassed and all that other kind of stuff, but I'll come out of it better. Now, we will give lip service to that until there's a problem that occurs in our lives that we don't want nobody to know anything about. We don't want to disclose. And we're forgetting to realize, but we say we believe in Jesus. We say he's ahead of my life. We say he's all powerful. If he's all those things and he can make a difference in whatever it is I'm going through. But I've got to have the right attitude. So in verses 6 uh, through 10, the miracle happens. So there's six water pots with, that hold 20 to 30 gallons of water, Brandon. So these 20 to 30 gallons of water now become 20 to 30 gallons of wine times six. That's a lot of wine. That'll get you through a week. And so listen to the instructions that uh, the servants are, give, are given. Fill these pots up to the brim. Fill it up to the tip top. Because uh, Jesus is going to make some good stuff. And, and the proof of that is what happens uh, after the water has been turned to wine. Folk taste it and say, this is the best thing that's out there. You know, folk normally uh, hold off uh, on the giving. The, they give out the good stuff. And then when everybody gets drunk, then they bring out the cheap stuff. Okay, you guys, okay. You don't, you, you don't, you don't want to acknowledge you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but he says, you know, at a wedding party, uh, because it's going to last so long, after folk have gotten high and, and they tipsy and all that kind of stuff, you, they, they now bring out the cheap wine because now they, 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 they've lost their sense of discernment. And, and so you can bring out the cheap stuff and they won't even know the difference because they're already gone. But he says... To the bride, you, you didn't do that. You, you saved the best stuff for last. Wow, this is a good wedding feast. But it happens because Jesus is on the scene and he fixes the problem. But he would have never been able to fix the problem if they hadn't done what he told them to do. And many times the problems in our lives do not get fixed because we don't do what Jesus tells us to do. We substitute our understanding, or we substitute the understanding of whoever advice we're seeking. And then we get upset when we don't get the results that we want. Eight o'clock, I, I made mention of this, and, and some of you brothers can, uh, I know, go with me there. You buy these things that you have to put together. You, get, you come in a box with instructions, all these different parts. Any of you ever put this stuff together and you still got a whole pot of pieces over here? But in your mind, it's put together. And you hide the extra pieces so your wife or nobody will know that, you know, it's not complete. And then the thing falls apart in a week or two. And you don't even say, well, probably fell apart because I didn't put all the pieces together. But, but you thought, you thought you had the expertise to handle this but you later learn you didn't. We need to learn how to call in somebody who's wiser and who knows more about this stuff than I do. Guess what, Jesus is wiser and he knows more about anything in life than you do. That's why we need to consult and do whatever he says. Now verse number 11 reminds us that as a result of what happens at the wedding ceremony, two things become evident. First, we see the glory of Jesus manifested. His deity is front and center. So anybody who didn't know who he was knows something about him now. Turning water into wine is impossible with man, not impossible with God. Not only is his deity manifested, or the fact that they now recognize he, he's God, but the few disciples that he has with him, they now come to believe in him. That's important because these guys had only heard about Jesus and heard about what he could do. And some of them had heard about it from John the Baptist. Guess what happens now? They see it for themselves. 
You have a testimony when you can see God working in your life. Now you tell people firsthand information, not what somebody else is telling you, but what you have experienced. And when you're talking about what you have experienced, there's a level of passion and commitment or confidence there that's not there from hearsay. So has God brought any of you out of, a, out of a hole? Brought any of you out of a bad situation? Bless you with stuff you know you don't deserve? Healed your body uh, when you were sick? Helped you to recover from, from situations that went on in your life that you thought you'd never recover from? You got a testimony. And by sharing that, folk will come to believe in Jesus. We keep our mouths closed on too much good stuff and we talk about too much stuff we shouldn't be talking about. I think I said something there. The things that we ought to be sharing to help bring people belief in Jesus, we rarely talk about. We keep our mouths closed because we don't want folk to know whatever it is we don't want them to know. You're a Christian. Your life ought to be an open book. Okay, you're a Christian. Your life ought to be an open book because you ought to be doing what Jesus said. And if we're doing what Jesus said, none of us have anything to be ashamed of. So be the example and let your life be a life that reflects the goodness of God. And you now can help use your experiences to help other folks. So, so there, there are folk here who need to know how to overcome certain things. Guess what? You've been down that road. Why don't you tell them? Why don't you tell them? There are those of you who had children out of wedlock. So why don't you get with a young girl who's going through that right now, who seems like everybody's turning their back on and talking about her. You help her to understand you can overcome this because you don't have to keep having babies out of wedlock. Okay, some of you have been laid off from a job and, and, and your stuff got repossessed. But God gave you another job and now you got more stuff than you had before. You need to tell folk it's not over just because you get a pink slip or you get downsized. Just do what God told you to do. Hold on a little while longer. Everything is going to be all right. We need to do the things that, that work toward belief in Jesus. And as I look at this group, I know there's some folk here. Jesus has done something for you. And more of us need to share what he's done. Some of you, you know, you used to visit the crack house. Yes, I said C-R-A-C-K, crack house. Dope man. Wine bibbler. There was not a nightclub in Boston that you hadn't been to. You used to stay out all night long. And Sunday church service was not something you went to. And if you did, you were hungover when you were here. But look at where you are now. And it's the now that's important. We can learn from what you used to do, but we're going to be interested. How do you get to where you are now? That's what I want you to tell me. And so we don't allow God to do for us what he wants to do in our lives because we're not willing to do what he says. Well, let me go ahead and end this. Uh, four quick lessons, uh, and then we'll be done. The first thought is that we learn from this text, this first miracle, that Jesus is God. Now, that's nothing new for us if you're a Christian, but it's plain and simple in the story. Because nobody could have done what Jesus did unless he was God. If you want some wine, you got to go to a store and buy it. Now, if you're from the old school, you can get you some grapes and some plums and stuff like that and, and make it. Yeah, if you're from the old school. But most of you, you want it instantly, so you go down to the liquor store. Or now, because they've made it convenient for you, you go to Walmart or any of these other stores and just go back there. You just make sure there's no Christians in there. You, you guys know when you, when you go for that, you're looking around to see who's in the store because you know you shouldn't be there. So if this lesson is going to help us, one of, another thing that we need to recognize is that you and I need to do what he says when he says it. 
Do what Jesus says when he says it. So when Jesus told the servants what to do in the text, they did it, and let's look at what resulted from it. What is Jesus telling you to do through the word of God? For some of you, he's telling you, you need to be baptized so you can be added to the body of Christ. That's what he's saying to you. He's not saying you need to be poured on, you need to be sprinkled. He's saying you need to be immersed in water. But what are you saying? When you know what he says, that's what we need to do. Do what he says without changing what he says. Because we live in a world now where folk change what Jesus said. They change it to be socially acceptable. We live in a world that is anti-God. And, and, and the people in the world don't see it that way because they view it as, well, it's evolving. Uh, where, where do you get that from? The word of God was true when it was written. It's true the way it is right now. And it'd be true after you and I dead and gone. Jesus Christ, I think the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't go changing what Jesus says. And then the, the final thought is whatever it is he says, do it completely. Do it to the end. You and I have been called to be faithful until we die. In Christianity, there is no retiring like on your job. And Christianity, we have been called to be faithful, consistent with what we know about God until the day we can no longer do anything. Now, that's going to mean you're going to have some dark days. That's going to mean you're going to have some challenges uh, that you wish you didn't have. You're going to have some problems. You're going to have some issues that you got to deal with. But you got to stay with God. And you got to trust that if I do what he says, things will get better. And for those of us who've been walking with God for a long period of time, you ought to be able to say your life is much better today than it was Amen. way back when. It's better not because I've been so good. It's better because God's been so good to me. And it's because he is so good to me that I keep on listening to him. And whatever it is he says, I am willing to do. See, when you have a heart that's tender to God, that will keep you always listening to him. And if you listen to him, you're going to eventually find yourself obeying him. If you listen to him and you obey him, you're going to find yourself being blessed by him. These people in the text were able to avoid an embarrassing situation because Jesus was there. Invite Jesus into your mess, into your storm, into your challenge, into your problem, and see if he won't fix it. But you know what? You got to do it his way. This afternoon, if you have a statement, you have a prayer request, you have a confession that you need to make, we're going to give you the opportunity now uh, to do that as we stand and sing the song of obedience.